0: And you can turn to Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, where we will be. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Dear Holy as we just sang the song about what it would be like to be home we pray when we are done looking at your word today that our hearts would long even more to be home with you and long for that day when death will be no more, long for that day when disease will be no more and that every tear will be wiped away and we'll be with you. Cause our hearts to long for that promised land, that Canaan. Yet as we even heard today, that each one of us will cross that river of death, and yet when that river is crossed, only Father, thank you that for those of us who know Christ, the bottom is strong and the arm to grab us from that river is sure. And so may we not waver, even though at times it seems that wrong is so strong. Thank you that you are the ruler yet. Help us now as we open up this passage to truly grasp what is happening here in all of its fullness. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. Now there are certain laws in this world, laws of gravity, different things like this. There's the thermal laws of dynamics and all that fun stuff there. Um, but I'm going to talk today about an opening illustration is called the Law of Unintended Consequences. All right, It is not a law that you'll find in a science book, uh, but it goes like this. This Law of Unintended Consequences could be described in this story. So in this story, there's three contractors, and these contractors are fighting for the bid on a major building project, all right? And so they're working and getting their bids together, and they're going to submit these bids. Well, there's three of them working, like I said, and they were told that the bid is going to go to whoever come in with the cheapest bid is going to win. And so these contractors are working hard, and as they are going to bring these in, they're told that they're going to be brought in in secret. So each one of you send us the bids, and then they'll figure out which one's going to get the money, because we're talking a several-year-long project. Well, one of the contractors has to go in and drop off, His bid, And he's told to wait in the main office because the boss will be there shortly to see you. And as he's waiting in the main office there, he's looking around and he sees on the desk in front of him one of the bids from another competitor that is right there. And as he leans in a little closer, he sees that it's actually really close and you're getting all the way down to the end. And he's ready to look at that final number, but there's a soda can on top of it. And he's sitting there for a moment, do I, what do I do, do I move it, do I not, and he sits there wrestling, and he doesn't hear anything going on behind him, so he decides to just slightly move the can, and he decides just to pick it up real quick and set it back down again. And when he picks it up, immediately thousands of BBs go rolling out all over the floor. He was set up. What we see here is in one small little act, literally thousands of unintended consequence happens, because there's no way he's going to put these back together. What we're going to see today from a human perspective, notice I'm going to say human perspective, we're about to see the ripple effect of one, we would argue, the first rebellion against God and all of its, I'm going to call it, unattended consequences. Because I can almost guarantee you, I do not know the mind of Adam but and Eve, but I doubt they thought <laughs> by just one act all of these things were going to play out. But what we're going to see is, while it looks like a series of unintended consequences, we're going to see that the sovereign creator is working all things according to what he has decreed before the foundation of the world. This is not taking God by surprise. When we go down through the curses, this is not God sitting here having to react to certain things. This is what God has decreed from the beginning to the end for him to receive all the glory and the praise. And so we're going to see here... The judgments, or another way of saying it, the punishments of the fall being carried out. So let's look at our text in Genesis 3:14 and 15. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." What we're going to see here, and I've titled it just The Curse on the Serpent, but before we go any further, though, we need to deal with a a big word. It's a big word, but it really means a lot of simple things. But if you've ever heard the word presupposition, the word presupposition means first truth or an established truth that we're all functioning as. You see this all the time. Let's say you're watching a murder trial and the lawyer starts out by saying, We all understand that murderers deserve the death penalty. Now I'm going to go and explain why this guy is a murderer and what he deserves. But he's trying to establish that first truth of what's taking place here and then building his case. And so whenever we come to Scripture, especially when it's dealing with sin, we have to say, what are the presuppositions that we are going to see as we look at this text? The first thing I'm going to try to lay out is we're going to see the natural consequences of sin being given here. There are natural consequences, like, to give you an example, you sow and then you reap. Those are the natural consequences. We're going to see some of those falling out. We're also going to see, the second one, is this text is going to be a divine judgment, meaning things were this way, now they're going to be this way. Things have happened. And it's really interesting, and I won't spend much more time on this, but it's a beautiful thing. If you're looking at, your, at the Bible text there, you will see the narrative going, and now when God breaks into the curses and the judgments on these people, it literally goes into poetic form. All right, Now, no one I looked for to see if any theologian called this poetic justice, but none of them did. But I'll just pretend what I see here is poetic justice, of literally the justice of God being carried out in poetic form through the, through the text of Scripture. And it is set apart for us to understand that something different is happening here. This is something for us to stand up and wake up. If you remember, the last time this happened was when Eve was brought to Adam, and he rejoices in the same poetic form, because remember, this is something that we're to stand out as we go through it. So let's look at the text here. In point number one, we're going to see that the serpent is cursed. So let's look at the text. When the Lord is going to look at the serpent, He's going to speak to the snake here and says, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field the serpent i want to it's an interesting thing to to pick out the serpent is the only one that is cursed I just we'll we'll deal with that in a little bit but the serpent is the one that is specifically picked out and said you are cursed adam and eve are not cursed the serpent is and the serpent being cursed again is an interesting thing in scripture Because we need to remember as we're going through this, the serpent was the tool in which Satan used to tempt Eve. The serpent is not a rational being, he is not a moral being that is to be held accountable for the sin. No more than Balaam's donkey when he spoke and he saw the angel was this a moral act or some type of saving act that the animal did. But what we're seeing going on in this passage is what we're we're noticing, and notice what it says, Cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. Now, as we understand the creation narrative, remember those two phrases were when God created the world, He created them, and you have the phrase, He created the, the livestock, which is according to we would call it, the tame animals, and then you have above all the beasts of the field. And this phrase here, Cursed are you above all and above all of this, is not saying that all the rest of the animals are cursed, and He's cursed more than that. What this text is saying is, out of all of the animals, you are being singled out serpent for a curse. Because sometimes we have to make sure we're clear on this, because in several passages of Scripture, in Jeremiah 12, 4, and several also other passages, we remind ourselves that all of creation is impacted by the fall. But I want to make sure we're clear on this, Animals do not die because they are sinners. They die because they live in a sinful world filled with disease and destruction all around us. Animals are not moral agents. Humans are. So when your dog dies, he is not dying because your dog is a sinner. Your cat maybe is a different story. But when your dog dies, he is dying because he lives in a sinful world with disease and chaos, and the fall has fallen on them. All right? We need to make sure we're clear on that because animals are not moral agents. And so when we start thinking about animals and plants and all these other things, we have to remind ourselves and going, so what's going on here? Why is God singling out this animal and then cursing the animal? Is is there something going on here that we need to pause? Because God, the creator of the universe, is going to give us now a reminder. He's going to give us a reminder of that great rebellion against God, and that reminder is to remind us that every single time we see the snake. Because what we're going to see here is that the snake, out of all the other animals, are going to give us two symbols, as I will call, reminders of the the, the destruction that sin has caused. So first we're going to see that the craftiness of the serpent is a living picture of the fall and deceitfulness of sin. The craftiness of the serpent that God has made is a reminder, a daily reminder of the deceitfulness of sin, the way that the serpent has been created in such a way that it lies in wait, waiting for its prey to come, and the snagging of that prey, that camouflage that it's using, that deceitfulness of the serpent, is a daily reminder of us over and over again the deceitfulness of sin. And the serpent is also a symbol of God's divine judgment. God is the one who is saying to the serpent, I am literally pulling you out of creation and using you as an example for all time of how great this rebellion is. And we need to pause here for a second and remember, we might go, well, come on, really the serpent? Let's pause and stop for a second. God, the creator of all of the universe, has the right, the sovereign right to tell any creature, this is what you're going to be, and you will be a symbol of how evil sin is for all of mankind to see every single time we look at you. Because there's even deeper meaning not only just by the serpent, what we're going to see as we play this out, there's even greater consequence that is coming. Because notice what the serpent happens to the serpent. It says the serpent, point number two, the serpent will eat dust and crawl. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Again, the serpent, point number two again, the serpent will eat dust and crawl. This is a this is bigger picture because what we have here as you're doing this, very shortly, we go from the serpent's punishment, and then roughly around verse 15, but remember the text, God does not break up Scripture, but numbering it verses. In here, as He's speaking to the serpent, He is also speaking to Satan. So there's an overlap that comes here. There's the symbol of the rebellion that God is giving the animal, but then He's also speaking to Satan as well, Lucifer. And we're starting to see these two things overlapping here. Because one of the things we know as we look back through, you can turn your, um, your Bible to so Isaiah chapter 14. And once you get there, then I want to chit-chat for a minute here. Let's get to Isaiah chapter 14. Because we need to start seeing what took place in the heavens. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 is where we'll start off first, but I want to I walk through this, this chapter here, fourteen, Isaiah 14 through 12 through 15, speaking about the Babylonian king, but also speaking about Satan, that great uh, fallen angel. We want to give you a little bit of a background here. Now, Satan was a cherub, or part of the cherubim of God when he created the world. The cherubim is... According to what it seems that Scripture is telling us, again, Scripture is not to teach us all about angels, but when it talks about angels, we can understand some things. Scripture is all about the glory of God, but at times when it talks about angels, it describes what they're doing. And so for our best understanding, that the cherubim were probably one of the highest ranking angels in the presence of God. It, is, it seems in Scripture that they are associated with the praise and glory of God, that so if, if we put those two thoughts together that Satan one of the highest ranking angels of, of all time if you want to call it that way literally involved with the praise and glory of God decided that's not enough. I'm really really close but I want to be I want to be God even though God has given him beauty and glory and all these other things that are right in front of him, he says, but that's not enough. Very similar to the lie that would happen in the garden. You can have all of the plants, eat anything you want, just not this. Almost the same thing to Satan. It's all yours in front of you, except you cannot be God. And what does Satan say? No, I want to be like the Most High. Listen to what, how this goes. And I would, if you're following, you can almost underline the I will statements in here. So verse 12 of Isaiah 14. How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you were cut to the ground, you, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mountain of the assemblies in the, north, in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to Sheol to, the, to reach... To the far reaches of the pit. And those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. And the text goes on. What do we see about Satan? A high and lifted up, and what do we see? Satan going, I will do this. I'm going to do this. I know better. I mean, this is exactly what he said to Adam and Eve in the garden. You know better. You can be like God. You can be the one in control. Here it is. All of this. And Satan going, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And what does God do? Instead of being lifted up, instead of Satan's pride being the thing that lifted up, Satan was cast down. Down to the earth you will go. And now notice what we go back in our text again. You can almost literally see this being played out. On your belly you should go, as if God grabs him by the throat again and go, down you're going to go. You went down to earth. Now what we're going to do, O Satan, down you're going to the dirt. All right, then we're going to see this being played out at the cross. There's another. I'll grab you again and whip you down. And finally in Revelation, we have at the end where he is destroyed completely, thrown into the lake of fire. This idea of Satan, a defeated foe, at times he thinks he's winning. But if in my picture, i grab him, grab him by the throat and just boom, again and again he's going down. And what we see here, this down you will go to the earth being played out, and dust you will eat, and you will grovel in the ground. Now, we have to wrestle with what's going on in our world around us. Because what we see though, even though through the rebellion of mankind, and remember Satan wanting to be like God, What we're going to see here shortly, but I want to just get this idea moving in our minds, is Satan, in a way, right now, even though he is a defeated foe, is sitting as a puppet king over a destroyed kingdom that he thinks he has won. and So this this is the way Tim thinks, and maybe you can get this in your brain. I see him on a pathetic throne, governing a land that is just filled with destruction and chaos, thinking that he has defeated God and all of his armies thinking he has won, but off in the distance in my mind, I see the Lord in a beautiful white horse on his way to destroy all the things that Satan thinks he is winning. And so what we're going to see here is this tension going on. And as we understand this tension, it will help us better understand what's going on around us. Because what we see here is God here casts Satan down again. To the earth and when Satan is cast down to the earth the serpent that is now going to crawl on the ground and eat dust it is a reminder that we need to go back and remember that when God created the animals he said you have all the herbs to eat and now what does he say to the serpent you, you know what you're going to eat as a symbol to remind ourselves of how Satan is being destroyed here's what you're going to eat O oh serpent dirt you don't get the joy of the herbs anymore, here's what you get. You're going to crawl on the ground and eat dirt. What we're about ready to see, again, this picture, this beautiful plan of redemption is going to start to unfold. Like I said before, where Satan will be destroyed and thrown down once and for all. But before we do that, though, we need to get start to wrestle with what's going on here in the text. Because point number three, and this is the one we're going to be on for a little bit here, point number three, we have this verse in 15, that says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her offspring and your offspring. I will br- he will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And we go, what's going on here? There's a lot going on here, I'll try to lay out. But before we do that, let's, let's just lay out what's going on in our day and age. In John 12, 31, you can turn there if you want, but we're just going to mention and move on. Jesus literally calls Satan the ruler of this world. And so we have to ask ourselves, what's going on there? If Satan is the ruler of this world, and God is the sovereign king over all things, what's happening here? Is Satan like, God just enlisted Satan to rule the world because he was busy or something else? Or, like, is he, is, what's, this, what's going on there? Well, here's what we have to make sure we understand. Satan is not working with God. Let's make sure we're clear on that first. All right, It's not God working and Satan working together on anything. Let's start at the very basic. Sin has violated the law of God, and it has destroyed the beauty of creation. Sin has blinded the heart of Adam and Eve and has left a barren wasteland of destruction, sorrow, and death in its wake. This is where we're at right now. Satan, the ruler of this world now, is going to be moving about thinking that he has won the day. Thinking that he has said, I've got this, I've destroyed what God has made. Because remember, Satan is not a creator. All he is is a destroyer of things. So whenever Satan comes in, all he can do is destroy and deceive. And so now Satan is at work thinking he is one, which is very interesting. I was reading um, the gleaning in Genesis on this, and A.W. Pink made a phenomenal point where he says, Satan works from the without to the within. He says, God works on man's heart and changes not only inside, but outside. So to give you a little more clarity on this, Satan begins with the external senses and emotions and works back to the Spirit. Because he has no truth, all he can do is try to toy with your emotions. That's why we call him the great deceiver, because what is he doing? Trying to deceive you to get you to believe a lie. So Satan works on the out and goes back towards the Spirit. And this is why we would again say over and over again, we don't start with emotions to find a truth. We start with the truth, And that changes our emotions. But the ruler of this age is all about emotion, all about deceiving to get you to believe a lie. And this is the hard part about sin is because it is so deceptive. Because it is external and you're sitting here going, do I really grab that fruit? Is it really what I need to be grabbing? Or is it what God has called what I know is true that really matters? Turn with me to uh, verse 15 here notice what's happening here satan now is being spoken to directly no longer is he speaking to the serpent and then to satan he's speaking to satan directly where god says i will put i will put enmity between you and the woman what we're going to see here is that satan is being judged by god let's make sure we're clear on this satan is being judged by God. God turns to Satan and tells him that there will be enmity between the seed of the woman and his seeds. This is huge. This is something that we can't move off of quickly. We now have two different seeds that are happening here. We have the seed of the serpent, and we have the seed of the woman. And this is massive as we move forward in understanding biblical history, understanding biblical narrative. Because remember this. Remember back to here, this, this seed of the serpent and the member the curse that is on the serpent as well as satan. So what we see here playing out is the curse that is played out is on the serpent. These words cursed are you is important here. Because as we follow these two seeds, the same line cursed are you is going to be on Cain. You follow the line of that seed as well, the next time cursed are you is on Ham, one of Noah's sons. And then the final time we see it in the book of Genesis, it's cursed on you as anyone who goes after the sons of Abraham. And we're going to see the cursed line, and we're going to see the line of the woman being played out. The line of Satan and the line of God's people. And notice what's happening between these lines. There's going to be enmity between these lines. I'm not going to steal any of Caleb's thunder because he's going to take us to Cain and Abel. We're going to see the enmity between these lines being played out. And this enmity will be a conflict between the people of God and those who do not belong to God. But it's going to look, notice the way this is going to look out, as it plays out. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. When we look at that, there's going to be some times where it seems on the surface that Satan has the upper hand and the bruising of the heel. But we know that God will deal the final blow. So let's go through some biblical facts that we need to see as we start to develop this whole picture. Satan is a ruler of this world, but he now has some control. I want to make sure we're clear on this some control over the fallen world and fallen humanity. I would, another way of putting it, he is a strong influencer, but he is under the control of God. And now there's two passages of Scripture that really help us understand this. Because if we're not careful, we can just make it sound like Satan's doing whatever he wants here. God's up in heaven just going, I'd really like to step in, but Satan's got the upper hand down here on earth. There's two passages of Scripture. I'll, I'll tell you them. You can read them on your own. Job verses 1 through 12 is one of them. You can look up on your own, but I'll give you the summary of it. In Job verses one, chapter 1 verses 1 through 12, the sons of God come gathering in. The angels of, of all around the earth come in, and God and the angelic world are having conversations, and Satan comes in there as well. And God looks at Satan and says, Have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says, Yeah, the only reason he follows you is because you give him all this stuff. And God says, No, I, basically he follows me because he's a follower of mine, and he is faithful. And Satan says, Basically, let me do everything I... Let me, Take it all away. And God says, you can take it all away, but you can't kill it. And Satan goes, got it. And away goes the book of Job. God telling Satan where your limits are. God, the sovereign one, says to Satan, here's where you can go and no further. Another one, when in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32, which is one of the ones that should cause us to immediately, these are the verses that go, well, what just happened there? Peter, we all know, is going to betray Jesus. And Peter and Jesus are having a conversation, and Jesus looks at him and says, Satan has asked to shift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you and it will not happen. Again, Satan notices, Satan has asked. Why does Satan have to ask? Because he is under the authority of all sovereign God. That nothing is happening that God is not allowed. These are the things we have to understand. Because in our minds, we can look around and go, it seems like evil is winning everywhere we look. And this is where the old hymn that that was penned, that though the wrong seems also strong, God is the what? The ruler yet. Because even notice this, and we're going to go down through this over and over and over again. We have to ask ourselves, as all of this evil is playing out, we go, well, where is God in this picture? Did Satan win? Is this enmity now that we're going to see just a oh man, these things are just really wrong, and if only we could be in the garden and everything would be going good. Adam and Eve, you guys just totally messed this up. Let's go through what we know is a fact. Man's sin did not and does not dethrone God as the sovereign king over all. Man's sin did not and does not dethrone God as the sovereign king over all. God is not wringing his hands, stressed that Adam messed up his plan, that God had a plan here and Adam totally messed it up. Now God is just this angry guy just shooting out all of his judgments on all these people, and he goes, man, I wish I could do something about this, but I can't, and, and maybe I'll do something I don't know yet. No, this is not plan B. This is what God has determined. God is sovereign over all things, John MacArthur on this text said, I thought it was a beautiful thing. The only thing that has changed is the paradigm in which God's sovereignly rules and operates. The only thing that has shifted is now he is still functioning as sovereign king now instead of over an unfallen world, over a fallen world. He is still sovereign over all. Again, I'm going go, we're going to go down through these rapid fire, but these are things we must understand. Because if we do not have an understanding of this, what happens when we have people that we know that are killed in a car accident and all of these other things that happen, do we really believe God is in control or are we just in a series of random events that were put into motion a long time ago that God's saying, I'm doing my best juggling all the things. Here's what is very clear. God is no less sovereign in a fallen world than in an unfallen world. God is no less sovereign in a fallen world than an unfallen world. Because if we're not careful, many times we have to say, Oh, no, 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 that wasn't God. God was not involved in that, just sin. No, that's not how the Bible speaks. Nor should we do that. But it's easy for us. What we want to do is like we think that we're letting God off the hook that sin is in this world. Another way of saying God is no less sovereign over Satan than he was before the fall. God is no less sovereign over Satan than he was before the fall. God is no less sovereign over Adam and Eve than he was before the fall. God is not the victim. Satan is not the ultimate winner. God is sovereign over all. Because notice this. I mean, let's just pause for a second. The sovereign king of all of creation is the one giving the judgment here. Let's think about that for a moment. If Satan somehow now is sovereign, if Adam somehow now is sovereign, if Eve is somehow now is sovereign, they would not be literally sitting here, if you want to say it, and like, line them all up and we're going, we're going to you first. God, from the level of authority, is telling Satan this is how it's going to be. He didn't say to Satan, what do you think the next thing should be? He doesn't ask Satan what Satan's thoughts are on it, nor does he ask Adam's thoughts or Eve's thoughts, but we'll deal with them later. What we have is a sovereign God saying, I am in control of all things. I am telling you how things are going to be from this day forward. And he's telling them the consequences. He is not waiting for them to see what choices they're going to make after this to decide what he's going to do. He is the one he is telling them what is going to happen. He's telling them the consequences. And so we look at this first curse today. And we see what God is doing. I mean, because you look at this, I will put enmity between these two seeds, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. This enmity is going to be now played out throughout all of human history. And you look at this and you say, well, well, why that way? I mean, couldn't you have said they're just going to get along? Couldn't you have said, oh, I know you didn't really mean it and all these other things. Why? Why put enmity between it? Why is it going to end up with the crucifying of his own son? Why is it that we're going to live in a world where sin and death reigns year after year, day after day, month after month? Why is it that we're going to have people that get sick and deformed over and over and over again? Why, why, why? We all want to cry out why, right? But the answer, first of all, is this. We, number one, don't understand how rebellious Adam and Eve were when they sinned against Almighty God. We don't understand our rebellion, nor do we understand the holiness of God. Because if we truly understood that, we would go, oh, this makes a whole lot of sense because we rebelled against our Creator. But also in that we have to remind ourselves of the truth we talked about over and over and over again, that everything God does is for our good and His glory. Everything that He's doing. I mean, we live in a sinful world, and we're going to start to see this. We haven't even gotten to the curse on the man and the woman, all right? The consequences of that. Not curse. The consequences of the man and the woman. Because remember, the serpent was the only one that was cursed. And so we have to ask ourselves, like, what are we to take from this? What we're to take from this is, and I pray that as you're seeing this first curse that is laid out on the serpent, you should start to see things are getting pretty dark. All right, You're starting to see things get dark, but what God is doing, He is setting the stage for the redemption of mankind, because the darker the backdrop, the more radiant the light of the gospel. And as we start to see that, we start to see the beauty of the gospel plan. Now in a minute here, we're going to end with a song. I want you to turn in your um, song books to this, on page 175, or hymn number 175, there's a phenomenal song that was written, and I want to work our way through this, because the hymn writer, I don't know which Matt wrote it, so we'll just say Matt, down at the bottom there. On page 175, he talks about Come Behold the Wonders mystery." When you have a mystery, that means there's some things that you're going, this is mysterious, how will this play out? And he's going to describe the mystery that we're about ready to sing here. He says, come behold the wonder and mystery. In the dawning of the king, he the theme of heaven praises. This is God, that heaven was singing his praises, right? What did he do? He robed himself in frail humanity, and he came down to our longing and in our darkness. The dark world of sin, God penetrates through, now the light of life has come. And that's what we're saying, we look to Christ because He's the one who came down to ransom us because we see how sinful we are. And then he goes even more, this mystery that we see. The perfect Son of Man, what He did was in His living and in His suffering, no trace of sin there, right? And what do we see Him? And we've been pounding this over and over and over again. The true and better Adam come to save the hellbound man. What could Adam have done? Absolutely nothing. I mean, Adam's as guilty as a serpent, as Eve, as everybody else. Because by the time we're done dealing with Adam, you should all go, ain't no way he's saving anybody, let alone himself. All right, that's why we need this seed to come. But we're going, who is this seed? Who is the one that's going to come? And this is the mystery that the whole rest of Scripture is going to unveil for us. Continually going on. But until we see... Where are we at? The better. He came to self, a hell-bound man. Christ, the great and sure fulfillment. In the law, in Him we stand, because we could never stand in our own righteousness at all. Verse 4, or 3. Come behold the wonder, Christ the Lord upon the tree. Immediately, where is Christ? On the tree. We've already said there's so much more about the tree world that we could get into in the Garden of Eden, but the tree that brought about rebellion, God one day will stand hanging on a tree to do what? Ruin sinners, here hangs the Lamb in victory. But then we see, what is it? The price of our redemption must be seen. Uh, if I could not encourage you more, until you understand the price of your redemption, you will not grasp the fullness of your salvation. Because let's be honest, all of us are really good. It's that guy that's bad. No, but what we need to understand, to behold the wondrous mystery, you have to understand how vile of a sinner you are And that's what gives you the ability to see the beautiful Savior. And what do we see? See the Father's plan. What does it talk about? Unfold. This is the beauty of what we get to see every Christmas, every Easter. Literally, redemption plan unfold, unfurled in front of us. And as it is unfurled in front of us, we should stand with joy, singing. What happens? He's bringing many sons to glory, grace and measured, love untold. And then the last verse says, slain by death, the God of life, what do we know? No grave could restrain Him. Praise the Lord, He is alive, because what was the punishment on man? You will die. But we needed a new man to come, to destroy the grave. And what a foretaste of this deliverance, and what gives us our unwavering hope, is Christ in power resurrected, and we will be one day when He comes. I mean, this song just wraps up the whole gospel message together, reminding ourselves of this. And our call every single day is to behold that wondrous mystery, understanding what's going on around us. As we see the battle even raging even more, the greater the battle that's going on, the more clarity the soldiers need. Because here's what's happening in front of us. All around us, the two seeds are at enmity with one another. You can literally watch it play out all around us. You are seeing the blindness Of the seed of the serpent literally blinded to the things of god literally pursuing after the evil things of god and the seed of the woman that we as followers of god that are found in christ the church are doing this should be a great chasm between us but what happens all around us is the allurements of the world are trying to draw the believer away from the things of god and how do we do this how do we fight the battle again the Christian walk is incredibly basic, but I would say the battle is really hard. I mean, let's be honest, in war, if you kill more than them, then they kill you, you win. All right, like this is simple like that. The Christian walk is summarized in Romans 12one and 2. By the continual renewing of our mind daily by the word of God, we will be able to test what is acceptable and what is the perfect will of God. So what is the answer to this? Be people of the Word. Drown yourself in the Word. Drown yourself in good, God-honoring, robust music and all of these things that will help you as you follow after Him. Because I'll tell you what, the battle is raging all around us. And it is time for us to wake up and do war with what God has given us. And the way we do war is in His Word to know what is true and then to follow what He has called us to do. What we're going to see here is this curse will be played out in the beautiful, salvific redemption. And my prayer is by the time we get to Christmas, by the time we get to Easter, Easter, our praise will be beyond decibels that it has ever been because we're seeing this beautiful plan of salvation played out. The other part, too, of this as well. This is not for us just to sit and ponder. These are the things that drive us on share with those around us, those who are lost and dying, the great God who they don't even know that they are to serve, to pointing others to Him. This is what causes us to wake up in the morning and say, Lord, give me opportunities to share my faith with others. Give me an opportunity to live out what I know in front of the world around us. And may that be our prayer, and then may this be what we sing, and I encourage you as we sing this song to truly understand the great depth of what this writer gave us. So let's pray. Dear Only Father, thank you. That it is by your grace we stand. Help us, as the uh, writer of this hymn calls us to do, to become behold the wondrous mystery. The things that have been going on from the dawn of time until now. Help us to truly behold that and then give you the glory and the praise for all things. Help us now we pray. In your name we pray. Amen.